And when we talked last time we were together, we talked about what it was like when God gives us a hard truth. How do we know that a vision in our lives is of God? And we talked about that. You could go back and listen to that message. But as we fast forward, uh, Peter agrees with God. And he goes with these servants that knock on his door and say, hey, there's this man, Cornelius. We need you to come with us. You have a message for him. And Peter agrees to go. And now we're at a moment in our story where Cornelius is retelling again how he came to call for Peter. Are you guys ready? Okay, let's, let's get into it. Acts chapter 10 and verse 30 says, And Cornelius said, Four days ago I was fasting until this hour, and at the ninth hour I prayed in my house, and behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing and said, Cornelius, thy prayer is heard. And thine alms are had in remembrance in the sight of God. Send therefore to Joppa, and call hither Simon, whose surname is Peter. He is lodged in the house of one Simon a tanner by the seaside, who when he cometh shall speak unto thee. Immediately therefore I sent to thee, and thou hast well done that thou art come. Now therefore are we all here present before God to hear all things that are commanded thee of God. Now listen. Cornelius tells this story. Now, Peter already had heard this story, hadn't he? Isn't this the exact same story that the servants told him when they showed up to his house? We're going to hear this story again in the next chapter. So three times this story is relayed to us. Three times. Now, we want to point out something here. This is a very important Bible study principle. Remember that emphasis and priority in Scripture looks like two things. Are you ready? The first thing is real estate occupied. Okay, and what do I mean by that? I mean that the more times in Scripture something is mentioned, the greater priority it is to God. You understand? So if something is repeated in pattern work throughout Scripture, that means that God... I mean, God could say anything in his book, couldn't he? Couldn't he write just about anything? I mean, the, if, if he wanted to, the book could be twice this size. And we would only have just touched it, right? But his word, his Bible for us, is his mind for us. These are the things that he would have us to emphasize and to prioritize and to understand. And so when we, when we see something repeated in Scripture, that is for us to take note of and recognize that the things that God emphasizes in terms of real estate in his book are intended for us to emphasize as real estate in our life. The other thing is clarity of communication. The more clear God is on a matter, maybe he doesn't repeat a matter, but he's exhaustive on a topic. The more clarity that God brings in his communication to us, the more we ought to emphasize it in our lives. In other words, if he speaks very directly to us, as a directive, and it doesn't require lots of repetition, then we ought to emphasize that and prioritize that as as something to emphasize in our lives. Now, the reason I point this out to you is because lots of people don't practice this in their Christianity. All right? They don't practice this in their Christianity. Let me me put it this way. You know, in discipleship, we we have a series of lessons, right? It's a structure. It's a structure so that we can learn of the things that God prioritizes the most for a New Testament believer, right? Now, now if we wanted to, 
again, we could spend, we could have the lessons, there could be a hundred lessons in discipleship. All right? But we simplify it down to 18 lessons. Yeah, yeah. For those of you who've already been in discipleship for a year, you're like, thank God, it's not a hundred. I'd never finish. But, but those are things that our leadership have just decided that, man, these are the things that are emphasized for a New Testament believer. This is foundational. Now let me explain something to you. Everything I need to know about how to serve God and be obedient to Him, I can find in the core doctrines of the faith. Now, listen to me. The Bible is so exhaustive that its depths can never be plumbed. We could spend every hour and every waking moment of our lives studying God's Word, and we will only just touch the surface of His mind. Only just touched it. And so I want to say to you, man, the whole Bible is worth studying. I'm not a very good swimmer, okay? So when I'm at the ocean, I don't go out too far. Now, if someone was to teach me to swim better, then I might have the guts to go a little further out. I might even have the guts to go scuba diving. Okay? That that ain't ever happening, actually. I'm not doing that. But, for a good swimmer, yeah? For the person person who wants to study, study God's word, to the work of studying God's word. They can swim as far as they want to go and they can swim as deep. But here's the thing that we need to remember is that there are things in scripture that we ought not fight over, quabble over. All right? There are peripheral issues in scripture. There are things that you might believe about God's word, okay, <clears throat> that, are, that are maybe even based on some inference. And what we must always remember is that the things that God prioritizes in Scripture are the things that we ought to prioritize. And and this is the way our pastors often put it. Key point number one, major on the majors and minor on the minors. Anybody in college? Yeah? You've got a major, you've got a minor. Okay? The minor is often hobby work, isn't it? Right? A lot of times you minor in things that you, that you just really enjoy or you feel like might be uh, <clears throat> valuable to you in some way, but only, only as it complements the thing that you major in. This is super important to remember. If things that you infer or learn from God's word that, that, that tend to not be focused on by God, okay? Who was Melchizedek? Okay, that's kind of an inside joke for those of you who are in LFBI. <clears throat> What, what, what was the fruit on the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? Was it apple-like? Was it pear-like? Were they grapes? Did Adam have a belly button? <laughs> All right, these are, the, look, and that's obviously the fringe of what I'm talking about, but what I'm saying is that, is that there is a spectrum of emphasis that we can, we can have in God's word. And there are core principles, and there are core doctrines, and there are core things that we ought to major in, And there are other things that support that and scaffold that, and those are the minors. And and, and if we get out into the minors, that's okay, but those minors ought to always point back to the major. 
If we get out into the minors and we start pointing outward and outward and we get out further and further, that's how heresy is born. Okay? And so I wanted to use this opportunity to express to you just how important it is. If God emphasizes it, if God speaks clearly on it, then we ought to major on those points. If God is quiet on a subject or ambiguous, then we minor on those points. Does that make sense? Now, back to our story. The reason that Cornelius' story is repeated three times is because God is getting our attention. We are in the midst of a monumental shift, a monumental moment in the history of the church age. How we see the entirety of our Bible pivots on this moment. God is tearing down the religious and nationalistic walls that separated the world from what had previously been a Jewish God. Do you understand? This is a crucial moment. And without this moment, let me explain this to you, without this moment where the first Gentile church is born, without this moment, we would not be here. That's pretty crazy, isn't it? If it wasn't for this moment and Cornelius and how God used these two men who were both hearing from God at the same time, and he brought them together. If this would not have happened, we would not be sitting here worshiping God, singing Rock of Ages. So this is a crucial moment. And and so the emphasis in Scripture is to help give us insight into the fact how important this was for God as well. Does that make sense to everyone? So, God is tearing down those religious walls. Let's look more carefully here. It says in verse 33, Immediately, therefore, I sent to thee, and thou hast done well that thou art come. Now, therefore, are we all here present before God to hear all things that are commanded thee of God. So these, these Grecians, are, are Cornelius and this congregation of people, are waiting with bated breath to hear what Peter has to tell them. Right? Now listen, there's probably a great tension in the room because all of these Grecians, all of these Gentiles would have been completely aware of the fact that Jews, especially the part of the world where, where Peter comes from, Jews would have had no dealings with Gentiles. Right? And so God has, God has called Peter to their midst to relay a message to them and in their minds, there's pro- they're probably playing out all the different things that he could be getting ready to say. Right? They could be thinking to themselves, oh, well, what if he asks us, what if he asks us to be circumcised? What if he, what if he tells us that, that we, have to, we have to practice temple sacrifice? What if he, what, what is he going to tell? See, they had absolutely no idea. This Jewish man was coming to them to tell them what God would have for them, and they have no idea what he's about to say. And so there's a tension, and they're standing, and they're gathered around, and they're ready to hear the words from Peter. But listen, they waited carefully. And as he began to speak, the first thing that he expresses is God's heart. Isn't that powerful? That the first thing that he says is not, okay, let me tell you a story. The first thing he does is he expresses to them God's 
heart for them. Acts chapter 10, verse 34 says, Then Peter opened his mouth. I love how that starts. He opened his mouth. You know, nothing gets done unless we open our mouths. Nothing gets done. You know, nothing gets done if Peter doesn't make that 33-mile trek from Joppa to Caesarea. Nothing gets done. We've got to go, and we've got to open our mouths. So Peter opens his mouth, and he says, Of a truth I perceive that God is no respecter of persons. But in every nation, he that feareth him and worketh righteousness is accepted with him. So what he tells this crowd of Greeks is the one thing he has actually just discovered for himself. That God is no respecter of nationality, age, ethnicity, gender. But to any person who comes to him in fearfulness and wonder and is willing to obey his will will find acceptance through the person of Jesus Christ. You know, up to this point, that had not been true. Do you understand? Up to this point, that had not been true. Now, of course, <clears throat> Gentiles would get saved. They were saved in the Old Testament. We see in the Old Testament how a Gentile who is willing to convert to Judaism would find salvation in God. Yeah? We would see that. We've even seen, so far in the Scriptures, we've seen Samaritans get saved. And so we, we see where God's going here, but it wasn't until this moment that these Jewish Christians, the apostles and the disciples of Jesus, until this moment, they didn't know that God was breaking down that middle wall of partition so that the gospel could go forth to every single person in the world with no barriers, no hurdles, no expectations outside of Jesus Christ. <clears throat> you know, the Jews were intended to be the nationality of God's favor, weren't they? God's exclusive people. But this moment marked a turning point for all of Christianity. Jesus did not come for the Jews and for their kingdom, but in the first advent, he came for everyone and for his kingdom, the kingdom of God. That's what he came for. See, this is a huge moment in history because what it does is it unlocks the mystery of John 3.16, doesn't it? That's a mysterious passage for any Jew. When the apostles heard Jesus speak and say that, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that, that whosoever believeth on him should not perish but have everlasting life. When they heard those words, that's, that, those are baffling words for the Jew, right? See, God loves the world so much that Christ died for the whole world so that all men could come freely to him, you know? Uh, we as, as 21st century Christians have to recognize a similar truth. We have to recognize a similar truth. Now look at us. Look at us. Good. Good Christians. Here on Sunday morning, sitting, I, was, I would say pew, because that sounds more spiritual, but these are just really hard chairs. <clears throat> Here gathered together, being good Christians. Now listen, how easily do our eyes turn inward. 
How easy is it for us to focus on what God has done for us to the point where we tend to neglect what God wants to do in the lives of others in our vicinity, in our family, in our workplace, in our classroom, in our country, in our world. And we get so focused, we get so wrapped up in us that we forget that Jesus Christ came to save the whole world. What is it? Here's the deal, and we'll get to this in the key point. Based on that truth, What is it that we aren't willing to do to make sure that everyone in the world hears that Jesus died for them? What is it that gets in the way? What is it that prevents us from focusing our attention on the one thing that God has called us to do? Here's the key point. And it's a long one. And here's the thing I want to say. Guys, I've been posting the PowerPoint on Kaya.live. You can go and you can have it on your phone. And so if I move too fast, it's there for you. So just go to the teaching section, pull it up, you've got it, and then that way you're not, you're not like worried about taking pictures or scrambling to get the notes down. They're all there for you, okay, your own personal PowerPoint. So listen, here's the point. If the gospel is for all men, Jew, Gentile, man, woman, black, white, brown, every, every make and model, if it's for all men, yet all haven't received it, then as ambassadors and witnesses of Jesus Christ, we must go to all men. That's a, anybody take a logic class in, in college? Yeah, if-then statements all semester long, right? If-then, if-then, right? Listen to me. This is a very simple logic. If the gospel, if Jesus Christ is for all men, and all men have not heard the gospel then we ought to go to all men. But we don't. We don't. It's impressed upon us here that if God's heart is for all peoples of the world, then we must be willing to go to all the peoples of the world. This was Peter's discovery. And this discovery beget the first Worldwide missionary movement. That's what we're about to see. Yeah? It's very cool. I cannot wait. I cannot wait for the rest of Acts. There's so much here, guys. So let's continue listening to Peter's gospel. And he's going to give a, a presentation of the gospel here. So now that they know that God's heart is for them, then they can hear the truths that he's about to speak. Now, now, let me explain something to you just briefly. In your evangelical ministry life, this is an important principle. A person is much more willing to receive the message of the gospel if you are first willing to present to them the fact that God loves them unconditionally. People need to know that you and that God love them. That God loves them first and that As a byproduct of that, you love them as well. They need to know that. And it makes the reception of the hard truths that much easier to hear. You know, love love primes the pump, 
on truth. And we've got to be about that. So they, they now know that God loves them. So what is it that Peter's about to say? What else can he, he do? Uh, what else can he do in this moment but speak truth, really? Right? I mean, let me put it this way. If he knows that, all, that God died, that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, died for all men, what else is he going to do right here besides preach? Right? What else is he going to do? This is the only reasonable thing to do, right? Is to preach. So Peter presents the gospel and he begins by describing the relationship between Jesus and the eternal word of God. Alright? That's how he begins. So principles for sharing the gospel. Alright? Love but then drawing correlation between Jesus Christ and the Word itself. He says, in verse 36, The Word which God sent unto the children of Israel. Now, we know, we know that the Word of God came to Israel for thousands of years through prophets. The Word of God had come to Israel, correct? So we know that to be true. But listen to what it says. The Word which God sent unto the children of Israel, preaching peace... By Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. This is a very weighty statement. So what he's saying is that the truth came to the Jews, and the truth then came through the preaching of Jesus Christ. And by the way, he is Lord of all. So let's first understand that there is a one-to-one equivalency between Jesus and the inspired words of God. Jesus is the physical embodiment of the knowledge of God. See, this is important because the Word of God, the divine and holy written scriptures of old that contains, contain God's prophetic word for centuries, absolutely, 100% proves and supports the testimony of Jesus Christ as the Son of God and the answer to Messianic prophecy. Okay, let me slow down for a second. What I mean by that is, there are hundreds of prophecies of the Messiah in the Old Testament. Hundreds upon hundreds of prophecies. And they all came true in the person of Jesus Christ. In other words, the Word of God supports and proves that Jesus Christ was divine. He was the Son of God come into the world. It absolutely proves that. From where he was born to what his life would look like, to what his ethnicity would be, to how he would die, to what his relationships would look like, to the things that he taught. A very, very simple survey of the Old Testament shows us that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Now let me say this. The life of of Jesus Christ, His words, His actions, His miracles, 100% prove, absolutely beyond a shadow of a doubt, that the Bible is God's complete word. That it is perfect. It works in the reverse. You understand? That His miraculous and perfect life also proves to us that Scripture is true. And He and Scripture 
are one. They're one. Jesus was the words he spoke. John chapter 1, verse 1 says this. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was God. Lot there. There's a lot there. Listen to me. Jesus Christ existed before the foundations of the world. Genesis chapter 1 actually proves that. We see God the Father. We see God the Holy Spirit. And we see Jesus Christ all present in the work of creating the world. Again, a very simple study. The triune God exists even from the first chapter of the, of the Bible. So in the beginning was the Word, capital W, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by Him, and without Him was not anything made. So what we see here is that Jesus Christ was divine, that He always existed, and that He is the Word of God. He is the physical embodiment of the Word. The two have been entwined since the heavens and earth were spoken into being. So why is this important to the gospel message? See, Cornelius had a knowledge of the scriptures. He was a religious man. He could acknowledge the fact that the Bible, the Old Testament scriptures, were true. But what he was unfamiliar with was the divinity of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. See, Peter was drawing an equivalency that we must also understand. Jesus is divine because the Holy Scriptures are divine. The Word of God is preserved by God in writ form. If God is big enough to create all things, He's big enough to preserve a little letter to you and me. I mean, we get so hung up on this topic, it's ridiculous. It's, it's absurd. We, will, we are willing to ascribe to God all of the power it took to, to, to create and build the entire universe. But the preservation of a little letter, oh, that must, that, yeah, that's an impossible feat. No, God wrote us a letter. And the breath he used to inspire it is, has so much power that even through the ages, as men transcribed those words, he was in it. An amazing, amazing thing. So Peter was drawing this correlation. John chapter 1, verse 14 says this, if it, if it wasn't clear before. And the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld His glory and the glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Verse 36 of Acts chapter 10 tells us that He is the Lord of all. And at the end of the day, this is the point. This is the point. that This, this is the one that the Scriptures foretold of. Are you guys with me so far? Next, the word was published. Verse 37. That word I say, ye know, which was published throughout all Judea and began from Galilee after the baptism which John preached. See, listen, this is the next point. His words, they spread. They spread. His words spread. The words of God were published throughout all of Judea and Galilee. His words of peace spread throughout all Judea, but beginning in Galilee after Christ's baptism. You guys remember this? Jesus gets baptized, and then he starts his public ministry. And for three and a half years, he preaches the word of God publicly, right? Yeah? Peter's describing Christ's ministry, and the fact that from his mouth and from his actions and from his healing hands, the words of God were manifest and spread abroad. 
So what was the word that he spoke? Well, as we know, in verse 36, it, these were words of peace. This was a message of peace. Now let me explain to you that, like this. If these are words of peace, these are the most divisive words of peace that have ever existed. Right? Like, See, here's the deal. The words of God are not easy to accept. They're not. I mean, what he's about to tell them is that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, came into the world, died, and rose from the dead. These are words that are not easy to hear. Okay? But the point is, to receive them is peace. To receive them is peace. John 5.23 says that all men should honor the Son even as they honor the Father. He that honoreth not the Son honoreth not the Father which hath sent him. These are the types of words that he spoke. John 14.6 says, Jesus said unto him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. In other words, the words that he said were, I am my Father's Son, and me and my Father are one, and no man gets to heaven but by me. Pretty divisive words for a message of peace. Pretty tough words. See, Jesus did not deviate from his firm declaration, I am the Son of God, and the only way to heaven is through me. His claims were crystal clear that he was living, that he was the living hope for all the lost people and sinful people of the world. That was, that was, that's what he came to preach. <clears throat> now he wasn't the only person in the first century who made this claim. Did you know that? There were other messiahs who claimed to be messiah in the first century. Radical men who claimed to be Christ. And the environment under the Roman, Roman rule was, was primed for prophetic conspiracy. But here's the difference between those men and Jesus. When they died, their message died. When he died, his message spread. When they died, their cults died. When he died and rose again, truth reigned. The book of Acts itself is the record of how the word of God was published beyond his death and burial and resurrection. The name of Jesus had absolutely been spread abroad. Peter makes it clear to Cornelius and the other Grecians that the angel that called Peter to Cornelius was, was, did so intending that Peter might come and testify to who Jesus Christ was. And he might once again publish the Word of God. I love this word publish that's used here. Don't you? It makes me think of, did anybody ever see the movie Newsies? Yeah, the Newsies. The Disney mu musical with Christian Bale as the lead. How many times have we watched Newsies? I'm a grown man, okay? I just want to, I want to tell you, I'm 37 years old. I, well, I turned 37 this year. Whoa, like, whoa, what? <laughs> Okay, if you put if you have a Newsies watch party, I'm there. I'm gonna I'll wear one of those Newsies caps. You know, 
Okay, so who, what, who are the Newsies? Well, the, the Newsies is a story, okay, about New York, okay, during the Industrial Revolution. It's grimy. You know, you know, you know the scene. Okay, it's grimy New York, okay? Street kids, okay, sell newspapers, and they sing about it, and they dance. <laughs> they're publishing the banner is what they say. They're, they're, the banner is the newspaper, right? <clears throat> but the idea of publishing is to spread the news, right? I think about Jesus and the apostles, and I ask myself, why was their publishing so effective? You ever think about that? Why was it that the message of Jesus Christ and the gospel spread like wildfire in the first century? Why is that? And you might ask yourself questions like, did they have special favor with God? Did they have special favor with God? No. No. No, they didn't. They didn't have special favor with God. They had the exact same promises and the exact same blessings that we have. Well, then you might say this, well, was their mission in some way unique? No, it wasn't. While their spiritual methodology might be unique, the same mission that the apostles had is the same exact mission that we have. It's the same exact mission. Well, then you say, well, was their spiritual gifting superior to our own? You already know the answer. Absolutely not. The same spirit that dwells in us dwelled in them. So why did Christianity thrive? Why was the message of peace so successfully spread, yet we struggle so much? Huh? No, the answer is quite simple. We are failing in our stewardship. We are poor servants. We've invested unwisely in temporal things. We are distracted more than any other generation before us. We are stifled in our prayer. We are stifled in our giving. We are stifled in our sacrifice. We are stifled in the word. We are stifled in our submission. We are stifled in obedience. We are stifled in our philosophies. We are stifled in our spiritual, emotional, intellectual, and sexual identities. And our floundering has dissolved any and all desire to publish the good news. And so we don't. Key point number three. If we are to publish Christ's name in this generation, we will need to be discipled. If we are going to be of any use to God in this generation then we need to be discipled now let me explain to you we are so drunk on materialism we are so intoxicated by the world that the only answer to undoing it is to choose, as radical as it may be, to sit under the teaching and mentorship of God's Word. See, this is what discipleship should be preparing us to do. Be daring in our publishing of God's Word. 
See, discipleship will reconstruct our identity. Discipleship will settle our philosophies. Discipleship will mend our desire to obey. Discipleship will give us the confidence to submit. Discipleship will instill a love for the Bible. Discipleship will form a character of sacrifice. Discipleship will make, uh, make our, our lives joyous in every regard. Discipleship will teach us to prioritize prayer and to honor the Holy Ghost. Discipleship will make you a fearless publisher of the gospel. When Jesus discipled his disciples, he said something that would frighten most Christians today to the point that most people, if they heard it, would walk away from the faith completely. In Mark chapter 13, verse 9, he says, But take heed to yourselves, for they shall deliver you up to councils, and in the synagogues ye shall be beaten, and ye shall be brought before rulers and kings for my sake for a testimony against them. And the gospel must first be published among all nations. When they shall lead you and deliver you up, take no thought beforehand what you shall speak. Neither do ye premeditate, but whatsoever shall be given you in that hour, that speak ye. For if not uh, ye that speak, if it, for it is not ye that speak, but the Holy Ghost. Okay, so what's happening here? Jesus tells his disciples that it is their responsibility to publish the gospel to the nations. But they're going to die for it. So if Christianity is the most elaborate of all cults that ever existed, then why was it that the eyewitnesses of Jesus Christ and his life, knowing that there would be no financial gain, that there would be no benefit, that life would only be hard, there was no promise of ease, chose to accept that as truth? They knew that publishing the gospel would cost them something. And we ought to know it as well. After Peter explains that the message of Jesus was spread, he explains how, verse 38, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Ghost and with power, who went about doing good and healing all that were oppressed of the devil, for for God was with him. Not only was Jesus famous, But he was famous because he had the power of God. He had divine power. This was confirmed even in the generation of Jews that preceded the death of Jesus. So there was a man named Josephus, Flavius Josephus. Okay, Uh, You may have heard of him. He was a historian in the first century. And he was born about three years after Jesus' death. He was a Jewish historian, born in Jerusalem, in the same city that Jesus was born in. And because of his proximity to Jesus, in terms of time and place, his writings 
have a near eyewitness quality as they relate to the entire culture and background of the New Testament. So he's often gone to as a historian for the first century, yeah? He was not a Christian, though. He was not a Christian. But listen, in his writings, he is quoted saying that Jesus was known for his virtuous behavior and his healings. And that he was known to have been crucified and was widely received to have risen again the third day. Yeah? Now here's the deal. Many, if not all people, would agree that Jesus was a historical figure. Right? That he lived and he did good things. See, what, what people often believe of Jesus is that he, is that he was good, even holy, some even would even say a prophet. And that he had many good moral things to say. But to be a Christian, it requires more. We must believe that he is the Son of God, divine in every regard, able to interject his supernatural power in a natural world that his own hands created. I mean, some of you may be familiar with the C.S. Lewis quote. I mean, you've been around for a while. You're familiar with this, okay? But as an argument for Jesus' divinity, he says that many people would say that Jesus was good. Right? So he, he, he could be good. Now, he could be crazy. Right? But based on the things that he said, he, listen, he cannot be anything but a liar if he's not the son of God. So if you want to say he's good, he's still a liar because he claimed to be the son of God. So I don't know how good he really is. Right? Or you could relegate him to cr- madness. He was crazy because he claimed to be the son of God. But his words are so articulate that there's no way that he was ma- a madman. And so we are left with this reality that we either have to accept him on his terms or reject him on his terms. And his terms are that he is the Son of God. We can't both celebrate Jesus and deny his divinity. We don't get to do that. You don't get to call him good. You don't get to call him moral if he's a liar, if he's crazy. We have to accept him on his terms. Key point number four, Jesus lived and proved who he was. Jesus lived and proved who he was. Next, verse 39. There were witnesses. 39, and we are witnesses of all things which he did both in the land of the Jews and in Jerusalem. The record of his life lives on in the accounts of the New Testament. The men who saw him, the people who followed him, their accounts are written down. We call them scripture. They were contemporaries of his. They lived with him. They walked with him. They ministered with him. They saw what he did. For these men to proclaim their witness in a hostile environment ultimately ended in a death sentence. These men were not after fame or to establish a well-managed cult. These are men who believed that they saw and had no choice They saw who he was, and they had no choice because of their conscience' sake to bear witness of his truth. Verse 39, and we are witnesses 
of all things which he did both in the land of the Jews and in Jerusalem, who they slew and hanged on a tree. Him, God raised up the third day and showed him openly, not to all the people, but unto the witnesses chosen before of God. We know of 500. 500 who saw him after his resurrection, even to us who did eat and drink with him after he rose from the dead. When a man defeats death, that's something to talk about. And here's the question, are you a witness? You know, I don't, I don't mean... I don't mean were you there when they crucified the Lord. I don't mean a first century witness. You didn't, you didn't see Jesus physically hung on the, the cross. I don't mean that. Are you a witness of his perfect peace. That he is unique among all the other gods of this world. Have you seen that he invites rest and comfort to all that follow him? If you desire to know Jesus Christ as your Savior, it is absolutely important that you don't leave today unless you've taken care of that business. If you know in your heart that Jesus Christ is who he says he is, then just like Cornelius and just like the crowd of Grecians that stood before Peter, you have a responsibility to respond to what you know. If he is the Son of God, then it is of the utmost consequence that you choose to repent of your sin today. Verse 42 says this, and he commanded us to preach unto the people and to testify that it is he which was ordained of God to be the judge of quick and dead. To him give all the prophets, all the prophets witness, all the prophets, all of them. Moses, Abraham, David, all of them. That through his name, whosoever believe in him shall receive remission of sins. For these Gentiles, they were ready to receive, are you? They knew, they knew now that Jesus was the Son of God and that he offered forgiveness of sin for all that would believe on him. Do you know that? Will you allow your life to be changed today? Will you bear witness to the conviction of your sin and confess it before God? Have you called on Jesus for salvation? Have you made him your God? If you have not, then today is the day. Because we don't know what tomorrow holds. You know, in so many other religions in the world, it's very easy to put off faith and obedience. And let me explain to you what I mean by that. In most religions of the world, you earn the favor of God. You earn his favor. You obey laws and you obey a commandment. And if you obey these laws and commandments, then you find favor in a God who has a scale in heaven. And he's, the scale tips one way or another based on your adherence to laws. And Jesus Christ destroyed that system. And Jesus Christ offers you a gift. It is a gift. It's extended to you through grace. 
And favor in the eyes of God looks like receiving the gift. And if you know today that you need Jesus Christ as your Savior, as we pray and we enter into worship, I would ask that you would come and grab one of our leaders who will be standing at the front of the room. If there's something else you need prayer about, if you know that your witness has been insufficient, if there's an aspect of your faith that has been weakened by pride, let's deal with those things today. But, But for sure, if you, know, if you don't know that Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior, let's take care of that today. Okay? Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you for the clarity of Peter's gospel message. Lord, I thank you for everything that he espouses in this passage to Cornelius. I'm so excited to see how quickly the Grecians and Cornelius in the, in the next portion of this passage receive this truth. They are faithful to receive it. And so Lord, here we are bearing witness of those exact same truths. And I'm, and I'm curious, Lord, who are you calling today? Lord, who is it that you're speaking to? Lord, are there people in this room today who have grown up hearing about Jesus? but have never recognized that it is their responsibility to repent of their sin and turn towards Him as Master and Lord of their lives. Are there people today, Lord, in this room that you would convict and draw them to yourself that they might receive Jesus Christ? Lord, you are so good and you are so loving. And Lord, you love the world. You sent Jesus because you loved the world. And I'm so grateful for that. I'm I'm so grateful that you are inclusive and that you've poured out your favor on us through Jesus. Lord, give us strength to respond to that truth. In Jesus' name, amen.